All right, everybody. Can you believe it's November 1st? I can't. So in case you're all feeling a little uh, disheveled from daylight savings and the fact that it's November 1st, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. I was listening to a porta I'm sorry, I was listening to a podcast this last week on porta potties. I've been practicing that line all week and I messed it up. I was listening to a podcast this past week on porta potties. Yes, it was quite interesting actually. Uh, one of the stages of the porta potty development came because of, in, because of World War II. There were bombers, uh, airplane, airplane pilots, help me Jesus, who had to go to the bathroom, right? They were up in the air for so long and they needed facilities. Now, the problem was at the time, they couldn't figure out how to keep the latrine from kind of sloshing around as they were flying, you can imagine. So one of the things that they did is they attached a tube to said receptacle, and it, was, uh, it led outside. And so they would relieve themselves, and the product would leave the plane and disperse. Now, sometimes the elements would freeze. And so when they floated through the air because of the altitude, they would freeze and they would ostensibly land frozen wherever they did. So in the podcast, they were discussing that the American pilots had some journal entries about this happening and how much joy it brought them. And they were all giggling about essentially dropping urine bombs on the Germans. And as I listened to this story, it struck me in 2020 that the podcast hosts were chuckling right along with the pilots because it was clear the Germans deserved the urine bombs. And yet, as we live in this culture today, go on Twitter. Anyone who follows Paul Allen, he even got in trouble this week talking about politics and religion and sports and the debate and the disagreements that happened. Watch TV, and anyone who has said has watched any political candidate's commercial, what do they do first? They point at their opponent, and they call them names or, you know, right? When we have an enemy, we live in a society right now where we kind of feel justified in treating the enemy poorly, dropping urine bombs, for lack of a better term today. It's becoming to kind of feel normal isn't it? Expected even. When you watch a debate, we just kind of expect the mudslinging. In fact, mudslinging is a term that I think is just sort of like partnered with the political season. And I don't know about you, but some of the people that I hang out with and I am tired of it. Anyone? Okay, yes, we are tired of it. The good news that I get to bring today is that there is a better way. And Jesus teaches us that way. If you've been listening to this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we have been following this message that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago called the Sermon on the Mount. He also gave it to people who were tired. Tired with what had become expected and normal in their culture. They were tired of religion. They were tired of more to-dos. They were tired of impossible holiness codes and they were tired of the people who were telling them how they were supposed to live. They were tired of their relational brokenness. And Jesus entered the scene and sketched for them a new vision of what it could look like to be part of his kingdom. He said that the morning 
Those who mourn would be comforted. The people who were meek and timid would inherit the earth. He also told us that we desperately and they needed a righteousness that surpassed any righteous person that we knew. He also told us that if our eye caused us to sin, to gouge it out. Remember that one? He tells us to quickly reconcile with those we have arguments. He tells us that lust, adultery, murder, throwing insults, divorce, anger, and overstating an oath is not the way to life. Instead, Jesus gives us the good news that he is now the way to life. He is the righteousness that we need. And as Dallas Willard has taught us, he is not just the source of our righteousness, but he has set the course for righteousness. The good news is, is that we can act as reconciled people because Jesus himself reconciled us to himself and offers us a way to be reconciled with one another, even if there are enemies. There is a better way, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So would you join me in praying one more time? I know Brian just prayed for the message, but I'd like to pray one more time. Because Jesus, your words are hard. (laughs) This has been a hard series. I love hard things. I love a challenge. Uh, But Jesus, in this atmosphere where we are tired of the banter, we're tired of the mudslinging, we're tired of the name-calling, Lord, we are tired. Uh, Although we got an extra hour of sleep last night, having the extra hour sometimes messes with our body clocks, Lord. So I would pray, Father, as we enter the space today, where we do feel defeated or we feel like the enemies are winning or we feel like the arguments are winning. Jesus, we just invite your voice. We invite the good news to enter this space. Amen. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other as well. And if anyone sues you and takes your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then give them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus is not letting us off the hook today. He leaves no stone unturned and I would say no challenge untested. So first the cultural context for these uh, sections. An eye for an eye and a two for tooth. There was a system in both theological religious circles and in the judicial, the legal circles, that equality or retribution was the way to go. That is how they designed their justice systems. To me, that was, to them, that was justice. Mosaic law in Exodus 1 says, technically, it says, show no pity. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Does that sound like our world today? (laughs) Literally, oh, they're doing it. And I've even had conversations with people when I say, gosh, why do they do this? And the first thing they'll say is, well, the other party does it. It's worth noting that some historians think, however, by Jesus' day, no longer literally like if I knocked your tooth out, you'd knock mine out. They had figured out a financial system so that they would figure out, okay, instead of my taking your tooth, I paid you money for that tooth. It's sort of how we do things today, right? If I hit you with my car, you don't hit me with the car. I pay you money to get your car fixed. And as we read these new rulings from Jesus, 
No longer are we supposed to do an eye for an eye. Scott McKnight says that essentially Jesus in this passage is canceling the Mosaic law. It's not like rewriting it or getting to the heart of it. He literally says, we're not going to play by that rule in our relationships. It's not just an alternative to retribution. It's literally saying, we're not doing that anymore. Instead of retribution and equality, we're going to offer mercy and grace. So instead of a a society based on an eye for an eye, Jesus says, there's a better way. And we all get to choose it. There are five situations that he sets out here. So the first one is the slapping. This has never happened to me, okay? I've never physically been slapped, praise the Lord. Getting slapped once apparently was really bad in their culture. Getting slapped twice was absolutely demoralizing. And as we read this, we can think, gosh, is Jesus really asking me, like if someone physically hurts me or is damaging me with words that I'm literally just supposed to take it? I would humbly suggest to you to think of Jesus on the night he suffered or as he lived his life. In Isaiah, it talks about, like a lamb before a slaughter, Jesus went to the cross. The second situation says, not only are you supposed to give up the clothing in a court case where you've been sued and you're supposed to give up your, your inner clothing, it says, oh, give them the coat too. So I was thinking about this today. If I think of like old movies, People didn't put on an overcoat before they went outside. Have you ever noticed this, like, especially like British films? They just sort of had an outfit and they went about their business. Maybe they put like a little shawl on or something. But essentially because of the heating or lack thereof, what they wore was what they wore. And so you would oftentimes in a court case have to give up the inner layer, but a judge would never ask you to give up your coat because the coat was a protection really against the cold. The coat was also like a blanket at night. So for you to give up that outer layer was not just like, oh, bummer, I have to give up my coat. There was a sense of like security, warmth, uh, warmth at night. That was a big deal to give up the coat. The third is walking an extra mile. This uh, really must have hurt when the Jews heard this. There were soldiers in these days that worked for Rome, not for the Jews. And the soldiers could at any time come to you and say, I need you to be my Sherpa or my pack mule. And whatever gear that soldier had that didn't want to carry for a while, you literally, by law, had to walk a mile and alleviate that burden for the soldier. And so Jesus is saying, not only do you have to humiliate yourself for this oppressive soldier uh, representing Rome, who's completely destroyed your everyday life, not only do you that mile, which is required by law, go an extra mile which I can run a mile, that's fine, but normally I'm not carrying anything while I do it. (laughs) When you have to walk a mile with extra gear, it's a big deal. Israel hated the rule that required the one mile. To do that one mile for anyone with a good attitude was amazing, but to do it for an enemy, an extra mile would have been unheard of. We're about to talk about loving your enemies, and I think this section really would have epitomized it for the Jews. But first, before we get to the enemy, let's just talk about one more thing, which is completely personal and private, and very rarely do we talk about it, probably in church at this extent. Money. So there are two situations here at the end, which is why I said there are kind of five situations. 
If someone goes to you and asks for money and they're not prepared to pay it back, you're supposed to give it. Or if they need a loan, again, you might not get paid back. You're supposed to give it. So as Jesus calls us to these kinds of behaviors, does anyone just feel like um, none of that is natural? (laughs) I don't like wake up in the morning like, oh, I hope someone asks me for money today. I hope someone insults me or slaps me around, right? It's crazy. It really is crazy. As I continue to look at this, there's no like wiggle room out of here. There's no like, oh, he didn't really mean your money. He doesn't really mean for you to love people. He is asking us for nonviolence and submission in the face of injustice. Now, a word here. This does not mean that if you are in an abusive relationship, you should just stand around and get slapped around, okay? This doesn't mean that if those around you are in physical harm and danger, Jesus is saying, take it. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the relationships that you and I both know we have in this world and how could we live it out differently. It's going to be countercultural, especially this week and the next. God knows when we're going to find out who won the presidential campaign or all of the other local uh, elections for that matter. It's going to be difficult. You might have to bite your tongue, which is what I do sometimes. But just imagine if we lived this way. Instead of retaliation and retribution, if we started treating people this way, even our enemies. So going on in verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors do that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Like, everybody does that. Don't even pagans do that? People who don't believe in Jesus? And then verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. I sort of feel like that's a mic drop moment right there. (laughs) Like, should I just kind of leave that there and maybe we can have some silence as we consider what we're going to do with that? So Jesus is going through the Sermon on the Mount and a few places before he said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. When he says that, he is establishing himself as the authority. It is no longer what you thought you knew. It's no longer the words on a page that you've been memorizing maybe as a child. Jesus is now saying, I am the voice. I am the authority. Literally, Jesus is saying, I am the way. He is rewriting a vision for us about this kingdom, and he's inviting it, inviting us into it, even to treat our enemies well. So I'd never really thought about this before, reading some commentaries this past week. I was thinking, did the Jews really get taught to hate their enemies? Like, was that a commandment? No. Was it like all over in the Old Testament? No, but you can see it woven through. 
Psalm 139, for instance, which is the you've created me, you know me, you know when I get up and when I get down, if you're familiar with Psalm 139, there's a lot of very intimate language in this. Towards the end of it, the psalmist says, don't I hate those who hate you, Lord? As if it's something to be proud of. And instead, Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. He said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are those who get theirs in the end. And verse 46, did you listen to this? Like, well, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and good, and God sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you only love the people who love you, like, I kind of hear Jesus saying, like, big deal. Anybody can do that. And it makes me think of the salt and light section. If you're only with salty people, people who treat you well, is that really a place to be salty? If I'm in the light, do I need to shine my light? So when we're loving our enemies, you guys, we're bringing salt into a place that needs salt. When we're loving our enemies, we're going into the darkness and we're saying the darkness can never overcome the light, even if I am the only voice calling out in the wilderness. And then there's that last verse, verse 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, great. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Perfect like God? I don't, I don't know. That's not on my list of like, goals this week. When you look at the term be perfect, in the Greek, there's a sense of maturity, that we're grown up, that we have matured and we're complete. So I think it's interesting in this section because he says, act this way and you'll be like children of God. And then he also says, be perfect, be mature. And I was saying to Brian last night, it's sort of like Jesus is saying, have all the good qualities of kids. You know, when kids are out on the playground and they don't care who they're playing with, they maybe just had a fight with somebody and they're over it. At least my boys are like this. They can like fight and be best friends two minutes later, right? Those are the good parts about being children. Then there are some things that are not good about being children. And we need to like grow up in Jesus. We need to act like adults, mature people who have our worth found in Christ. And I don't need to take it out on you, even if you are my enemy. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're like hearing the enemy talk and maybe the political stuff like rises some things within you, raises some things within you. Or maybe you're like super nice. I'm sure I'm looking at some of you out there. You're super nice. I heard on the radio recently that most Americans really don't think they have an enemy. Like if you were to say, how many enemies do you have? Maybe like nobody does come to mind. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So I love words, English major, uh, English teachers in the room, hallelujah. So the word enemy, when you look it up in the Greek, is one who's hated. That makes sense, right? The word odious was in by dictionary. So by odious, do I get points for like terms today? Odious means extremely unpleasant or repulsive. Narrows it down a little bit, right? It's also connected to the Greek word for hostility. It brings up a sense of opposition or a foe. So anyone had any unpleasant conversations lately? Anyone had any opposition with anyone else recently? Jesus would say, that's like your enemy. And how are you going to treat those people? So sometimes in our house, I'm sure this doesn't happen anywhere else, but sometimes it's in my household. <laughs> There's literally somebody in my house that I just feel like, 
boom. You know, you just have those days. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, it's like you're just rubbing the person the wrong way. Sometimes Brian's my enemy, God bless you, uh, but you know, it happens, all right? Sometimes it's extremely unpleasant to talk with people about certain topics, and you just like, it kind of crackles and it flares up and you gotta just pray through it. Oh man, it's hard. So what does it mean? Friends, followers of Jesus, what does it look like to love our enemies these days? Sometimes it does mean just shutting up and walking away right? Because sometimes with people, it's just like too hard. Or again, as I said before, this isn't meant for those of us who are in harmful relationships or those relationships where maybe you really have tried and it's like just not working, okay? I'm talking about the situations where you and I both know maybe we could do some work. Jesus is really talking about, as I study and study and study, he's really talking about passivism, Nonviolence resistance, the stuff that like South Africa and the apartheid, the stuff of civil rights, how women got the vote, okay? Was there violence in some of those situations? Absolutely. But in general, as you think about those platforms, their hope was the nonviolent resistance. I also learned that early Christians for hundreds of years refused to join the armed forces. They refused to get into a battle where they would take the life of another. They refuse to treat their enemies with violence. Now, when I say this, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, that's impossible. We live in a fallen world. We need people to join the army. Some of us in the room probably have been in the armed forces. Or we just say like, there's just somebody in my life, Sandy, I just can't. It is unrealistic. I really think it is. Because we look out in the world, right? What proof is there that this can actually work? And this is what I would say to those arguments today. Are we getting anywhere with the way things are? Does anybody really feel good about the direction? In some areas, yes, there's always hope, right? But in general, I just think we all feel like, check, please. Jesus, come back. Anybody feel like that? Like, just come on back, Jesus. We're ready. So what would it look like? if we actually did this? What would it look like if we took the challenge and said, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna try? So I have two stories as we close today. One is from sort of a hero that I've never met, and some, uh, one of the stories is very close to home. So you guys know who Corey Ten Boom is. Corey Ten Boom, uh, as she was late in life, she was a famous speaker. She had been in concentration camps in Germany. She had just finished speaking on the forgiveness of Christ and the great love that he has for all people. And as she stood on stage, a man walked up to her and she recognized this man. This man was known to be one of the most brutal soldiers in the concentration camp. He was the soldier who stood in the showers while she and her younger sister had stripped down naked and forced them into the concentration camp. He mocked them as they walked by. And he was walking on stage to talk to Corey after she had preached. And as she looked at him, the story goes that she said, I can't do this, Jesus. I just can't do it. But God, I pray that you would give me your forgiveness for him. And then she said, God, I will lift my hand to him, but you've got to do the rest. And the story goes that as the man 
obviously, gratefully shakes hands with Corey, she said she literally felt the forgiveness and love and peace of Christ permeate her entire body. She also said she began to cry, and she said, I forgive you with all my heart. Corey Ten Boom also said in that moment, it was a time that I knew God's love more intensely than any other, but I realized it was not my love for him. I had tried and failed, but it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Corey Ten Boom, I'm sure, went through years of processing what had happened to her. That is an, is an extreme example of any enemies in her life. But I think the point being is that we can't do it. We can't. There are some things that are just too much for us. But Corey gives us an example about how to love an enemy and where that love comes from. Thankfully, I've never been in a concentration camp, but I would say I was on the beneficiary, uh, I, I was benefiting from other people who chose love over uh, retribution. So some of you guys might not know this, but my dad was married before marrying my mom and divorced Zelen and left three daughters before he met, married my mom, and had me. My three sisters, as I call them, Kathy, Lisa, and Priscilla, I've always had a great relationship with them. And probably, oh, five or six years ago, my eldest sister and I were going for a walk, and I said to her, it was Father's Day, I said to her, you know, Kathy, it strikes me, my whole life, I've never felt like you've treated me poorly. And she said, oh, Sandy, we've always just loved you. My sisters had no reason to treat me well. Their mom had, has no reason to treat me well. And thankfully, Zelen and my sisters have always chosen to love me, who could have been their enemy. Nobody would have blamed them for it. But they did not choose that way. They chose the better way. Corey Ten Boom chose it. What if we all choose it? What would your holiday table look like with your family this year? What would it look like when you do have to interact with your ex? What is it going to look like this week, you guys, when your candidate wins or if your candidate doesn't? What would happen? What would be different? And as Corey said, I expect that as we choose this, that we will know God's love more intensely than ever before. And isn't that what we need in these days where we're so tired? Would you pray with me? Jesus, sometimes we just can't. It's too hard, it's too much, the hurt goes too deep. But Father, we trust that the power of your Holy Spirit comes and meets us as we need you. Father, there are things that I'm sure some of my brothers and sisters have faced that go way beyond just the, oh yeah, sure, I forgive you. And so Lord, as they continue to need to process and find healing, Lord, we do pray for those hurts. And for those of us today that maybe just need to think about how we treat those around us this week as we have conversations at work, as we eat together with our own families, as we look ahead uh, to this political season, Jesus, would you give us that grace and mercy? Give it to us when we don't have it. Give it to us when we do. Uh, Jesus, we want to follow you. 
We want to choose the better way. Amen.